Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Podcast Playground! Hooray! Welcome to Taking a Walk. Here's Buzz Knight. Well, Emily Cavanaugh, it's so nice to be taking a walk with you in New York City. And with you. Thank you so much for having me on. You have an amazing story. Um, first, let's talk about your singer-songwriter career. Um, when did you know you were first hooked on music? Well, you know, my grandma was a singer. Um, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago, uh, 57 First Cousins, very close-knit community. You know, growing up, it was kind of everything was about community and togetherness. So any chance for a family party, we took one. Any chance for, you know, a sing-song, we had one. Um, Very big, very Irish, very Irish-American. Just all together all the time. And I think I learned from an early age that if you could tell a story or make someone laugh, uh, life was good. So that sort of encouraged, I guess, that piece of me. And and who were the musicians that influenced you at an early age? So, Mom um, listened a lot to CSNY, um, a lot of Joni Mitchell, a lot of Joan Baez, Carole King. My dad was 
more of the John Denver, Nat King Cole, um, Louis Armstrong variety. And those were the records that really played in our house. And in Chicago, really known for lots of different music and styles. So did you get out and see shows there? I did. I did. My first show, I was 17, was, um, was actually Bob Dylan. And I think that, that that has stayed with me all these years later. Like, he's still probably, I would credit, as one of my biggest influences. Um, what was the venue? Do you know what? I want to say Ravinia. Does that feel right? I'm not sure. I don't know it the might, venues in Chicago. It might have even been Northwestern put on some big event. But I was just touched that my parents let me out for the night. And i um, proud that the first that the first show I ever saw live was Dylan. Have you checked out the uh, Philosophy of Modern Song, the Bob Dylan book? No, and everyone always asks me that. Oh, you have to. You, you totally have to. It's, uh, it, you know, it is... You may not recognize a lot of, uh, a lot of the music, but uh, you will definitely recognize his voice as he analyzes uh, these songs. Yeah. You know? And you'll recognize some of them, too. We're in the studio right now, actually, recording a version of um, Girl from the North Country, which is one of my most favorites of all of his songs. Oh, my God. Do you recall when he jumped out on stage, if it was one of his better nights of performance? Because he's known for, he could be up and down, and he could get away with it because he's Bob. You know, I think when you love an artist so much, there's almost, like, blinders on. Like, I love him in an unconditional way of... To me, it's always Dylan, and so it's always good, and there's always something to take away from it. Um, so I do remember a little bit of a of a magic to seeing him that young. I have to share. I just recently discovered uh, this amazing um, performance with Dylan and Susan Tedeschi. Ooh. That if you could if you could find this, it's, it's Susan at a very young age, and Bob. Clearly blown away by her brilliance. Yeah, it's it's like magical. I would love to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what are the shows do you remember seeing in Chicago that really made an impact? Well, you know, as a little girl, I listened a lot to folk music. I also was really taken by jazz. Um, my grandma was a jazz singer, and so all the songs in the '30s, '40s. When I was little, we would hear Judy Garland. <laughs> I have a memory of, it's almost a little embarrassing, but um, my grand sounded so much like her that I remember hearing uh, an old recording of Judy and thinking it was my grandma. There was just such a similarity in, in the sound, you know? So that played into my earliest influences. Um, I loved Joni Mitchell. I loved Joan Baez. I loved uh, Jefferson Airplane. I loved a lot of music that came long before I was even born. Um, Did you look that? I think more modern influences. Like, I was really into Soundgarden. I loved Eddie Vedder. I loved all of the, you know, the folk scene, the rock scene. Um, not much of that turns up in my music, but it's a lot of what I listen to. Has anybody told you that you have a little resemblance to Joni Mitchell? Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's too large a compliment, but you're awfully kind. <laughs> That means they have, right? <laughs> I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. 
And how magical is it that she's, uh, you know, out and about more, right? Yeah, yeah, and that so many young artists are bringing such attention to her. It's you know, amazing. Like Brandy Carlile has done not wonders for Joni's career. Joni's career is already so big, but I think really putting a spotlight back on yeah. how brilliant she was and what she's done for so many people who've come after her. I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. So, how did you end up in New York City? Cue the siren. Yeah. I, since I was a little girl, wanted to move to New York. Yeah. And it's funny because I knew I wanted to sing and I knew I wanted to do something to kind of be in the world helping. You know, I, I never felt responsible enough to be a teacher. I never really saw myself as someone who could plan a lesson or, you know, do something like that. But I, I felt very comfortable at what has become the intersection of music and service, right? So I loved singing for um, kids who were coming out of homelessness. Like, I loved working with people who were in certain situations in their lives where maybe, uh, you know, they were down on their luck, but, like, through writing a song, they could talk about it in ways that I think sometimes other forms of, say, therapy or, you know, are useful, but not perhaps um, as free. And so as a, you know, sort of a free spirit myself, I just felt like that was the way that I could bring those two together. Um, so as a very little girl, I wanted to come here and sing. And I am so lucky that it's all these years later. It's 18 years later, and, and that's what I'm doing. But then you stumbled into something pretty amazing called A Song For You. I wouldn't say stumbled, but... Um, no, that's right. It By was accident. a bit of serendipitousness uh, to it. Um, so, talk to the audience about how that happened. Yeah, yeah, that was entirely unplanned. I mean, had there not been a pandemic, I don't know that I would have thought to start something like this. Right, like in the middle of this global epidemic, I'm sitting watching Netflix. Um, eating all my feelings. You're in Chicago. <laughs> Binging then. Schitt's Creek. Um, <laughs> oh, you're here then. Well, I was here in New York, uh, but right when right when everything hit, I did go home to be with my family for three months. And so that was one of the very few silver linings was I got to be there, you know, with my dad on his 70th birthday and go for walks with my mom and um, be with my brothers and sister and, uh, you know... And I just, I remember sitting watching, like all of us, the stories every day of what was happening in the world and thinking, is there any way I can help, you know? And honestly, the answer as a singer-songwriter in a global pandemic is probably going to almost always be no. You know, my skill set is fairly limited. But I knew I could write a song, and I knew that in the communities that I travel in, so can most of the other people that I'm friends with, you know? And so I just started thinking, well, what if there was a way that we could start telling the stories of the people who are in these rooms where their families can't reach them? And so even if it was just to send a song to offer a little comfort or bring a little peace to people um, on behalf of their families, that was where the idea was born from. You know, I think for everyone there's something that stood out in the pandemic that like they just couldn't wrap their head around, be it loss or the sense of time or this feeling stuck inside or whatever it was for each person, you know. But for me, it was just this idea that people were, you know, essentially dying in rooms where no one could be with them and hold their hand. Um, and so I did this really 
lo-fi, low-budge, honestly low-quality recording of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I started just cold calling hospitals and hospices and saying, you know, do you have a patient that might need a song? And initially the answer was, you know, we're up to our eyeballs, like we're very limited bandwidth. Um, there's not much that, that we can do, even if we love this idea. But in, you know, three to six months time, I started getting calls back. Social workers, uh, volunteer coordinators, chaplains. We have a nurse that would love a song. She's in isolation. We have a family member that just can't reach their person, but they want to send them something to say, I love you. Can you write it? You know, can you send it? And so what began is let's just send a few songs turned into let's write and record personalized songs based on the stories of the patients in the rooms. And this was all over the country? or Well, initially, honestly, it was just, it was really Chicago and New York. Okay. Then it was California that, you know, that um, called back. Um, then it grew from, you know, we wrote, we probably wrote maybe five songs in the beginning to over 200 in the course of 18 months time um, even writing for staffs you know staffs is small a uh, staff as small as 50 healthcare workers to 300 healthcare workers to 15,000 uh, healthcare workers in a system in Idaho at Christmas um, were you ever at a point you were, were you discouraged that you weren't hearing back from people no I never felt discouraged because I recognized the moment, you know, I mean, the world was shut down, right? Like, this this wasn't something that I was hoping, um, that I ever even thought would have the spotlight on it that has, has come to be. It was really just something to do in a time when, as an artist, you know, venues were dark, work was scarce, um, sounds were plentiful. People, people uh, that I loved and that I knew uh, we're stuck at home. I mean, that for all of us, right? And so it was more like it was it was almost more of a surprise, to be honest, when people reached back out and said we could use this. It surprises me to this day that it's grown into what it has. So how did the charity then become a full 501c3? Well, so we're still pending the 501. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're, still, we're still a little ways away from that. But the kindness of the community, you know, the kindness of the press, the kindness of the healthcare workers, the kindness of the people that were sharing their stories with us and then sharing our story on behalf of what we were doing. Um, you know, so the writers at People Magazine and Upworthy and Medium and ABC. And it was just really such a generous response that kind of serendipitous, serendipitously, um, a man that I had met in a coffee shop years before who I had struck up a conversation and then what turned into a friendship with, he and his wife were this amazing couple and he was this great businessman, she was this wonderful ballerina, she was always encouraging him to do a bit of philanthropy. We became friendly, the three of us, she encouraged me to keep at the service side of my work and my life, but to really cultivate that through the arts. She ended up passing away um, not long after this had started, and her husband reached out to me and said, you know, I love this work that you're doing. I want to be a part of it. Charlene, his late wife, would have loved to be a part of it too. And the irony, Charlene, when she passed, she ended up passing in a hospice that we were already writing for here in New York City. And so it was really just a full circle moment. Um, 
and he said, you know, I want to, I, I believe in this and I want to help you. Uh, and that seed money that he donated got us started as a nonprofit. Um, and so we, we went from this tiny little initiative to still a very tiny, uh, but organization here in New York that now writes for patients and families in hospice and hospital across the country. But you're also, uh, it's just you and then other people who volunteer to write and record the music. Yeah, the kindness of all of the um, volunteer artists, the, the local to Grammy nominee to Grammy uh, award-winning songwriters who have all shared a song of theirs either on behalf of our initiative or on behalf of the family that really needed a song. Talk about some of the, those folks. Sure. Um, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't even know where to start there. So I could talk about what I would call my first co-writer. And so my first co-writer is a 16-year-old girl in Arizona who sent me a song request um, on behalf of her dad who ended up passing away shortly after uh, he received his song. But she basically shared, you know, she wasn't very close to him growing up. She didn't know much about him. Um, she was a little angry with him because he had left, you know, her and her mom. And it really wasn't until she discovered how much she loved music that she reconnected with her dad because it was the one thing they could bond over. And so, you know, I sent on the intake to our social worker out west. Um, shout out to Lisa because she's a star. <laughs> and Lisa passed on the, this you know, questionnaire to this wonderful girl, um, and she just wrote pages. You know, some people will, will write back, I, I want a song for my mom, she loves country music, and, and that's okay, that's all that they want to share. But this girl just wrote a novel, and essentially the sentiment she wanted conveyed was, no matter what has happened, no matter what our relationship, like, after you're gone, I'll go on singing your name. And that ended up being the title of the song, and I feel like it almost speaks the best to our mission, um, because it's this idea that even after someone has left, uh, their legacy can still live on through a song. So, I mean, from someone, you know, like Kayla to, um, you know, um, friends of mine over in Ireland who have won all sorts of awards and were kind enough to, to send songs um, to family and friends back in Chicago, to local musicians here in New York, to Grammy Award winner Jesse Harris, who wrote all of the songs that won Nora Jones for Grammys, um, Sasha Allen, who you know, sings backing vocals for the Rolling Stones and took time out of her out of her life to, to send a song, you know. Uh, Sophie B. Hawkins, who wrote my favorite song when I was 16, As I Lay Me Down to Sleep, sent a song to a patient out west with a personalized shout-out to say, you know, this song is for you. Um, Amazing. Yeah, so the response from, I mean, everyone has said yes. That's what's blown my mind. Like, in such a dark time in the world that there was the lightness of these amazing people who just said, sure, I'll send a song, I'll write a song, I'll share this mission with my community. That is what always keeps me going. So as somebody who observes this process and understands music, um, what's the impact of music to these family members, to these individuals, um, Talk about the healing force of music. I mean, it's so interesting. I could talk about that one for hours. How long is your podcast? <laughs> 
as long as we need. As long as this walk. Um, I can speak to it personally, and then I can speak to it, you know, on the collective. I think in a time like the one that we were living in, everyone just needed to feel some sort of connection. And I personally don't know of a better connector than music. I think it's universal. I think it goes beyond um, borders. I think it goes beyond race. It goes beyond age. It goes beyond, you know, it connected Kayla to her dad, who for a very long time she had no relationship with, right? So on the personal, knowing how much of an impact it's had on my life and how much, besides my family and my friends, it has been the constant source of joy, um, I think it's really incredible that for so many other people in such a dark time, that was the thing they were turning to, right? Like people went on live streams, record sales went up in terms of people bought old record players and they were listening to the songs of their childhood. It was like having a a friend in a room with you when you couldn't be in a room with your friend or it was like having a meal that you love, you know, um, listening to these old songs from when you were growing up. So I guess in a way I've always found that music is sort of that bridge between people who might not otherwise have a connection and then if you already have that connection but you just can't be in the rooms with the people you love like it's all the more powerful um so I think that's what we found like even now people will say to me will you ever do like a live performance or do you go into the hospitals or I don't understand the process like are you like musicians on call or music therapists and we're you know all those places I so admire and revere but why we're a little bit unique and we're not doing anything that no one's done before but where we are unique is that this was born in a time when no one could be in the room with each other which for me has always been what music is so this was a way to sort of almost recreate the sense of being with the people you love when you couldn't be so now that we have the opportunity to be live again or go into a room I almost I almost don't want us to because it was born in this time that I want to still honor and I love this idea that you can have a recording, you can have an MP3, it's tangible, you can hold on to it. So families will, will reach out to me now and say, you know, um, I still listen to that song, like it still plays in my playlist. Like we wrote a song for a woman who wanted to marry the love of her life on Valentine's Day. Um, and she knew she didn't have much time left. And so he wrote out a whole intake and explained all the reasons he loved her and all the things that were amazing about her. And they ended up getting married in California under this large tree with friends of theirs around. And they danced to the song that we wrote for her um, as, their, as their first dance, you know. And so he still gets to play that song even though, even though she's no longer uh, with us. So when you uh, first, you know, became attracted to music, could you have ever imagined that you got so close to it as a, like a, a healing force? No, never in a million years. I was living for a long time at the intersection of working in both service and music. And so I just feel so lucky that in this intersection, this is sort of um, everything that I've been doing for a long time, but it feels much more intentional. So if musicians listening to this want to help, how do they uh, participate yeah. in the song for you? Well, we would love that. I mean, it's, in this moment, I'll be honest and say, I think our demand for songs has, has grown past our resources. Um, so, you know, when you're doing something for free for a long time, um, you get to a moment where you have to make a decision. And while we still want to 
maintain our mission of providing free services to families for as long as we can. We also want to be able to pay our artists and our musicians and our studios and, and you know, be an artist-based organization that also does good by the artists, right? So I always put out there, like, we're still doing these songs primarily for free. So if there are artists that are in a position where they can donate a song, we would be so grateful. Um, and if there are artists that just want to spread it to their community or share it with their people to get even more eyes and ears on it, that would be amazing. We're, we're also looking for uh, people in development, people in fundraising, people who have that part of the brain that you can imagine as an artist isn't my strong suit, right? So I can write the songs and I love sitting with people and I love that element of, of connecting um, with folks and connecting folks, but in terms of how we're going to fundraise, how we're going to make this a sustainable mission, um, that's where we can definitely use um, uh, other people. And of all genres of music. Absolutely. Anywhere. Anywhere. Globally. Globally. Because we do have a global audience. Well, hello. Taking a walk. That's right. Take a walk to New York and write a song. Yeah. <laughs> so they can get a hold of you how... So they can reach me at Emily Cavanaugh Music at Gmail. Um, they can find me on all the socials. Again, that's just Emily Cavanaugh Music on Instagram or Facebook, Emily Cavanaugh on Spotify. And our website, I want to give a shout out to our great designers, is hereisasongforyou.org. And uh, I personally will attest to Emily Cavanaugh Music on Spotify with an amazing uh, version in particular of Fly Me to the Moon. Oh, you're so kind. Which is just wonderful. Do you want to know something funny about that? I used to sing in a little piano bar in Chicago when I was saving up to come to New York called Fly Me to the Moon. And it was one of my favorite memories in music. Gregory ran the show. He was a blast. He was such a character. We had so many fun nights there. And all these years later, I went back to check in and just to say hello and to see, you know, my people. And Fly Me to the Moon is now called Wrigleyville Wieners. <laughs> Jeez, I like Fly Me to the Moon better. For sure. Wow. So where would we be without music? Oh, man, I can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine my life without it. I mean, it's like, it sounds dramatic. It's like breathing. But it is such a basic part of life. Like, it is such a primal, everyday, um, I mean, even just in the sounds that we can hear in the back here, uh, background of the city cars and the buses and the, some are less melodic than others, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a life without music. I think it would be, it wouldn't be half as joyful. Well, you're doing amazing work. Thank you. Uh, it's it's stunning what you're doing, Thank you, my and uh, anybody who can reach out to you should uh, donate. Also, they can donate the, the the green, right? That would be incredible. How do they do that? That is a good question. <laughs> So, no, we are in the process of setting up. If you go to our website, there's a place where you're able to send on more about that. All right. Well, it's so great to have you on taking a walk Thanks in person. Was. So nice to take a walk with you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.